What we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 27, is simply astounding. David does something that I have never had to do and that I hope I never have to do, and that is to give a eulogy for two people at the same time. But as if that weren't hard enough in and of itself, he has to give a eulogy for two drastically different kinds of people. On the one hand, we have his best friend, Jonathan, the son of Saul. And of all the people in the Bible other than the Lord Jesus, Jonathan probably comes out looking the best. It's hard to find much of a stain on his character. In fact, he is praiseworthy, he is, he is brave, he is loyal, he is faithful to God. He's the type of person that you would want to do a eulogy for. He's someone that you wouldn't mind getting up at his funeral and speaking. But his father Saul, on the other hand, has tried to kill David on numerous occasions. He has proven himself to be a, a maniac, to be obsessive and paranoid, and yet look at how David speaks about him. It might be an interesting thought experiment to imagine if you were asked to get up and speak for your enemy's funeral. What would you say? Could you say anything good at all if you had to? Well, David did. He eulogizes. He speaks a good word about both Jonathan and Saul following their death, their violent deaths on Mount Gilboa at the hands of the Philistines. And so what is it that enables David to do this? David gives us a picture of what it looks like to have what I'm going to call hope without halos. He speaks the truth about both Saul and Jonathan. He doesn't put halos around them. He speaks truly about them. And when you think about your own griefs and your own life, and you think about the could-have-beens, the should-have-beens, the would-have-beens. We all have things that we are glad about and that we wish could have continued longer. And we also have things that make us sad and regrets and things that fill us with bitterness. This hope that we see evidenced in David applies to both. And it shows us the kind of hope that God gives to us in the midst of our grief. And hope without halos is this. God gives hope not so that we can get over our grief. 
but so that we can see over our grief. And when we think about grief, we know we see it on a spectrum. There are some things that we're grieving right now in the midst of this pandemic that we know are not that deep. We had plans. We had things that we had hoped we would be doing. And that's a kind of grief that we can probably get over eventually, right? But we also acknowledge that in our lives, there are hurts, there are, there are griefs that we might experience healing from, but the scars and the wounds will remain until the day we die. There are griefs so deep, losses that bring so much pain that we will carry them with us. We don't get over them. God doesn't expect us to get over them. But, but, God can and God does give us hope so that we can see over them, so that we can see over those hurts and those pains and that grief. And my prayer is that God, through his word, as he inspired David to take up this lament, would give you hope. Hope without halos. Hope that is real and truthful and that helps you persevere through whatever trials you face. So how does God help us see over our grief? The first thing we see is that God helps us remember what has been lost. He helps us remember what has been lost. If you look at verse 17, David took up this lament, this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. Lament. We could define a lament as putting our grief into words, putting our sadness into words. David doesn't just bottle up his pain or his grief. He speaks it. And he doesn't just speak it to himself. He orders that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. And probably we're intended to take the bow as the title of this lament because it plays a prominent role in the description of Jonathan. He wants it to be published. He wants it to be taught. He wants it to be remembered, not forgotten. And we're told that it is written in the book of Jashar. And if you look at the table of contents in your Bible, you'll notice that you won't find it there. So what's up with this book? Well, evidently this is a book that's been lost to us. We have another reference to it in Joshua chapter 10 verse 13. But other than that, we don't know what this book contained. It seems to have contained the exploits of some of Israel's greatest heroes. And here's what we can make of it. If you think the Bible is long as we have it, we'll give thanks that God is compassionate and not making it any longer. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we need just enough, and God has given us just enough for our good and for his glory. But the point is that 
there has been a real loss for David and for Israel. And it's to be proclaimed. He says in verse 19, A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. And in your translation, you might have something different than gazelle. It might say, The glory, your glory, O Israel, lies slain. And the reality is we're dealing with poetry. And in any language, including Hebrew, poetry is always harder to translate and to understand, and sometimes you have words that can mean two completely different things, and such is the case here in verse 19. The word that he uses means gazelle, and it means glory or honor, and no doubt both are intended, and if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, we have a clear reference to a wild gazelle. Another argument in favor of translating as gazelle is that it says, this lies slain. An animal has been killed, in other words. And the point is that something beautiful, something good, something glorious, something strong, something that people took pride in, lies slain and slaughtered. The mighty have fallen. And it's important for you and for me as we grieve, whether it's grief over shattered plans or grief over the loss of a loved one, over a child, we are to remember. We are to give voice to what has been lost. And we need to get rid of any stigma that would attach to someone grieving as a Christian. When you grieve as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're a weak Christian. And sadly, because our faith proclaims such wondrous and glorious promises, sometimes we minimize the place of grief and lament. When in fact, when you grieve as a Christian, it doesn't make you a weak Christian. It shows that you're a human being with real feelings and emotions. And that's how God made you. It also means that there should be no stigma and no shame attached to any Christian who avails himself or avails herself of the resources that God has provided through Christian counseling. Counselors operating outside of a biblical worldview can do so much good to help us work through our griefs. And God gives hope not to get us over that, not so that we just move on or forget about it. No, he gives us hope so that we remember, so that we see over it. We see over it. And we see that this is a real hurt, a real pain experienced in this life. We need to acknowledge that. And then as we move into verse 20, we see how David in his grief is longing for the impossible. 
And sometimes in the midst of our grief, we can long for things that simply are not realistic. And what he says is, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. What are these places? These are cities of the Philistines. Gath was the hometown of Goliath, the giant. And whether David welcomes it or not, the word is out. If you just look back at chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we see that after the Philistines defeat Saul and Jonathan and the army of Israel there on on Mount Geboa, that they take their bodies, they strip them, they behead them, and they hang them up to make an example and to shame anyone who would follow the God of Israel. So the word is already out, but we see the pain in David's heart at the thought that Israel's enemies would gloat and rejoice over the downfall of God's anointed king. And you see the same thing in verse 21. Mountains of Gilboa, this place where this event took place, this defeat took place. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. Again, he's wanting something that's impossible. For him and for Israel, this is so earth-shattering that it seems as though creation itself has been shaken and that the world itself should not just continue as it has been. And when we are grieving and we are in the, the throes of grief, sometimes it seems like the rest of the world just goes about its business. When for us, our world is shattered by a loss and by grief. And so what we need, as God gives us hope to see over our grief, is for God to help us reaffirm, reaffirm what matters most. To reaffirm what matters most. And what matters most? God. Now, God is not explicitly named in this lament, but he is just beneath the surface. How so? If you look at the second half of verse 20, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Uncircumcised. That is a theological label. Circumcision was the sign that God gave to his people Israel, beginning with Abraham, Father Abraham, to mark them off, to single them out as his chosen people. And the Philistines don't have that mark. They are outside of God's promises. And for David to say, it pains me to think of God's enemies rejoicing over the downfall of God's people is to say, I'm not just grieving over Saul and his death. I'm not just grieving over Jonathan, my best friend. I'm grieving that the enemies of God are acting as though they have triumphed over God. He is concerned for the glory of God, for the honor of God, for the 
name of God, God's reputation. And then when you go to verse 21, God isn't named, but it says, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. Literally, the anointed shield of Saul, which is another way of saying two things using the same verbiage. Shields were typically oiled before battle to make them harder to grasp facing the enemy. But also we know that Saul is God's anointed king. He has been set apart for this sacred purpose. And now we see that he has fallen. And he has fallen in maybe the most humiliating way we can imagine. His body has been desecrated by his enemies. God's anointed king has been humiliated. And what that means for you and for me is that God, in giving us hope to see over our grief, reminds us that no matter how much hurt and pain we feel, and no matter how all-consuming it feels for us, His purposes are bigger. And He will fulfill His purposes. And we should grieve over not just our personal losses, but over when God's people are humiliated. Because what matters above anything else in this universe? The glory of God. The glory of God. And when we step back from our personal pain, we see that, that this death or this loss or this grief takes place in the larger context of a fallen world where death happens as a direct consequence of human sin. And it's not natural. That is a heresy to say that death is a part of life or that it's, that it's natural. It's not. It hurts. And as Christians, we know why it hurts because it's the sting of sin. And we acknowledge that hurt. And we plead with God and we cry out to God in the midst of our pain, but not just for ourselves, but for God to be glorified somehow over his enemies and all those who would exult over the downfall of God's people. But we also need to remember, even as we have confidence in God that he will be glorified, that his purposes will be accomplished in his own time and in his own way, we also need to learn from the example of Saul. Because this isn't just a tragedy out of nowhere. God had already warned Saul that he had rejected him as king of Israel. Why? Because Saul had rejected God by disobeying God, by doing what he wanted to do instead of what God had commanded him to do, by growing impatient with God.
and this is where it leads. And so whenever we see downfall, whenever we see hardship, whenever we see pain, we don't stop with saying, God, why? Or God, where are you? Instead, we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And we wait for him to lift us up. And we learn from the example of those who have fallen, especially those who have fallen in such a humiliating way. When we move to verses 22 to 24, we see where David is praising the good gifts that came to God's people through Saul and Jonathan. And if you've read the story, you may think, well, he sure is whitewashing this. I mean, really? Saul? I mean, we can see the good in Jonathan, but why is he including Saul in all of this? I mean, Saul doesn't deserve this kind of praise. And you've probably heard the, the saying, live your life so that the preacher won't have to lie at your funeral. <laughs> a lot of wisdom in that. A lot of wisdom at that. But what we see here is not David putting a halo around Saul or Jonathan, but giving thanks for the good that came to him and to Israel through these individuals. And it shows us that when God gives us hope without halos, when God gives us the hope we need to see over our griefs, he helps us to respect what we have received. To respect what we have received. And in this case, he shows how both Jonathan and Saul were great warriors. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. They were great warriors on the battlefield. And they were great leaders. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Look at the prosperity that God gave to you through them. And give thanks. And this is absolutely vital for you and for me as we face grief and, and, and loss. That as God gives us hope to see over our grief, we give thanks. We give thanks. Now, I'm mindful that as we're reading this together, we're in the middle of a national conversation and a national argument over the place of monuments and memory in our national life. And I'm not interested in wading into that fray. I'm only interested in glorifying 
one human being, and that's the one they called Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not married to any particular cause. I'm not married to any of these monuments or statues. But before we get swept up into an orgy of self-righteousness, and before we fixate on the vices of our predecessors, let's remember that in the sight of God, there are no perfect or praiseworthy individuals. On the contrary, wherever you find virtue in human beings, you find vices. And God in his sovereign power is able to draw out the virtues in anyone to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And again, I'm not taking a side on this. I'm just saying, let's not buy into the fantasy that that some people are better than others. We're not. I'm interested and I'm focused on your relationship with God and where you stand before God. And before God, we don't have anything to glory in. You have a past. I have a past. We all have a past. And it is filled with regret. It is filled with mistakes. It is filled with would have been, should have been, could have been. It's filled with grief and loss and pain. And we need God to give us hope without halos so that we can respect what we have received, the good that we have received, both the good that God did in an individual and the good that we received through an individual. And God was good to Saul. God was good to Jonathan. God put them in these positions of power for a reason. He put put them in these positions of influence for a reason. And if we are to spit upon Saul or Jonathan without recognizing their virtues, well then we're not just spitting upon these individuals, we're spitting upon a gift of God. And I know this is a really hard thing to accept sometimes, because on a personal level, we think of, of parents and dysfunctional families and cases of abuse. Are we supposed to respect what we've received there? No, we don't respect the pain and the hurt and the abuse. But if you can't give thanks for anything else, give thanks that you have life. And that if that individual, whoever it is in your life, didn't do anything else, if you can't see one other gift or virtue, give thanks to God that you're alive, that you're in this world. Moving to verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Notice the parallel with verse 19. Now David is bringing it home. Now he's expressing his personal grief. Jonathan is the gazelle. Jonathan lies slain, just as the gazelle lies slain on the heights. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. 
You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now, unfortunately, some interpreters have, have read this and thought, oh, I guess David's coming out of the closet. Well, that's nonsense, of course. God's word makes it very clear. You go to places like Leviticus 18, and same-sex erotic relationships are an abomination in the sight of God. It's not pleasing to him in any way. And so that would be nonsense to think that King David is expressing that here. What, what is he saying, though? He's saying that Jonathan, in his loyalty, in his loyalty to David, was even more loyal than what you would expect from a spouse. Jonathan was so loyal that even though he was the heir to the throne of Israel, he chose to forego all of that for the sake of David because he knew that David was God's chosen king. There's nothing erotic here. This is about faithfulness and loyalty. And then you see in verse 27 how he ends with the refrain, how the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. And what we see here is how God helps us recognize what will last. What will last. And in the end, even the best things in this life will not last. And there are good dimensions of this life. There's, there's friendship and devotion and love like we see between David and Jonathan. And it doesn't last. And those things that we consider mighty and strong and glorious, oh, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And it reminds us of the truth expressed by Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Everything in this life, in the end, will go the way of all the flesh. Even the best things in this life will not last. So what do we do? We recognize what will last. And what will last is the Lord God Almighty, who is eternal and who has made himself known in David's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, what we hope for, what we pray for, what we long for, is not to get over our grief, but to see over our grief so that we can see the Lord Jesus. To let him be our vision. To let him set the agenda for our lives. To let the Lord Jesus be our hope. Because the Lord Jesus did for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. 
He died on the cross for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God, God's just and righteous wrath against our sins. He absorbed all of that, and he conquered the grave. And there is nothing, and there is no one that can put the Lord Jesus back in the grave. He is our hope. Death can't touch him. So do you see him? He's available. He's available to you in the midst of your pain. He will meet you in your grief. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Look for him in the hurt and in the pain and in the grief. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will comfort you. He will be a balm for your wounds. He will do for you what nothing else can do. So go to him. Bring your hurts. Bring your pains. Bring your grief. He knows what to do with them. And nothing, nothing is wasted when we put it in the hands of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for how we can learn, for how you teach us through David's grief. And we thank you that the same hope that we see in his lament, as it reaches beyond his grief to you, is available to us through the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts. That you, as the God of all comfort, would surround us with your love and with your mercy and with your grace so that we would have a hope that will never, ever disappoint us. For we pray all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you have any questions or if you have any prayer concerns or burdens you'd like to share, please reach out by email. We are so glad that you've been able to worship with us. We hope that you have a wonderful week.